Hello, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Project Next, the podcast that explores the future of technology in marketing and communications. I'm your host, Brian Martin. Today, we are chatting with Nani De La Pena, a true pioneer in the virtual, mixed, and augmented reality space. Welcome, Nani. Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. Nani, you are a journalist, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, an entrepreneur, and you were named the Tech Innovator of the Year as one of Wall Street Journal's 10 innovators last year. You're also the founder and CEO of Emblematic Group, a digital and media company focused on immersive AR, VR, and mixed reality. That's a lot. Let's start with how you got involved with VR. So I think that um, I've always been kind of keen about technological issues. And I remember reading the Howard Rangel book in the early 90s, and it was just called Virtual Reality. And I remember when I read that book, I was like, wow, that's what I really want to do. But I didn't know how to get my hands in there, you know, how to actually start the coding process, even though I later started teaching myself HTML, et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't until uh, many years later with digital artist Peggy Weil, we created a virtual Guantanamo Bay prison in Second Life. Wow. And the idea was, as a journalist, I'd done a documentary piece on it, and it was off limits. And it was also kind of forgotten. And it seemed to me an important story journalistically, and we wanted to give people an idea, what was this inaccessible place like? So we built a virtual one. I really had this aha moment after I made that project where I went, oh, we can use this technology for all kinds of storytelling. And that's when I coined the term immersive journalism. Immersive journalism is such a great term and an approach I think will get more and more popular. Your Hunger in L.A. piece was a good example of that. That piece got a lot of attention. Tell us about that. So Hunger in L.A. ended up being the first piece of virtual reality ever to be shown at the Sundance Film Festival. And uh, using real audio captured at food banks, you know, I had an intern named Michaela Kopsa-Mark who got the, the real key audio on scene where a man with diabetes who didn't get food in time waiting in the long line, his blood sugar dropped too low, and he collapsed into a diabetic coma, and, you know, the paramedics have to come, and in the chaos, somebody's trying to steal food. It's a pretty powerful audio landscape. And uh, at that point, there weren't even GoPro cameras. So I built this piece that put you on scene, standing next to this man as he collapses into a coma. And the power of that piece was significant. And it actually led to a lot of other artists beginning to um, adopt the medium as a way for telling their own stories. So where did you go from there? So you, you did this piece that debuted at Sundance. You were also doing something with Syrian refugees for the World Economic Forum. So since that time, continue to tackle some pretty um, hard stories to think about creating in a way that puts people on scene, right? That's the whole purpose of the storytelling is that you're in the middle of the event as it happens, or you're in the middle of the story. You're not watching it as an outside observer removed by a screen. You're there. And so it seemed to me um, important to tell stories that otherwise seemed kind of invisible. So Syrian refugees, we did homelessness in the LGBTQ community. I've done domestic violence. Three women a day are killed by um, their intimate partners, usually by a gun. Um, and that piece, Kia, is incredibly resonant. And then more recently, we did some really amazing pieces with PBS and Nova on solitary confinement and climate change. So those are the journalism pieces. But all the way through, we've been doing some sort of entertainment stuff and also work that we've done with brands as well. Tell me about some of the stories you've done for some of the brands, Google, Amazon, AT&T. 
So Google came to us with this very interesting project of how do we start using some sort of AI tools to de-escalate police violence. It was really interesting. So we found these uh, very um, dense training information, and we actually put it up against a character. And so that if you said certain things, the, the character would de-escalate in their behavior or they would get more angry. If you had your hand down by, you know, because it could track your body, if you had your hand down by a gun, the person would get more aggravated. If you had it up by your shoulders, because literally I can track where your hands are, it would cause de-escalation. So it was a it was a job that was very early on uh, being to work with AI tools. We also uh, have done this amazing work with AT&T, Origin Stories and Voyager. And in Origin Stories, we were able to capture really high-end fidelity, a former Olympic fencer, uh, trombone shorty, the great uh, trumpet player, and all that will be shown uh, quite soon. And, you know, usually we have to do some innovation work alongside these pieces. And, and Voyager, um, there isn't a uh, app out there that lets you use your front and back camera the way that we did, which we use what's called SLAM, which is basically a way to track your room with depth. You know, it comes from robots. Um, if you want your robot to see the world instantaneously as it moves through it and respond to it in a volumetric way, that's what SLAM allows you to do. So we use the SLAM on your phone to track your room, and then you could overlay a volumetric environment. We had the Grand Canyon, the moon, et cetera. And then you could flip the camera to face you and we use machine learning to call out the background and put you in that volumetric environment and let you take a video selfie. Wow. And yeah, so these are some of the really cool projects that we've done for these brands. Cartier was so fun. Like we all know about time-lapse, but what's the full embodied time-lapse? And we did all this research for their new building uh, when it was opening up on 5th and looked at historical images back in 1910 and the 1970s and the present. And we did this virtual time-lapse where we recreated the street perfectly. And as you stood there, the street uh, became its modern um, space, you know, the idea of car tape being timeless. Wow. Those are really good examples. And the diversity of our work is clear, right? We're best known for the emotional pieces, things like, you know, once you've been in a small, real solitary cell with a man who's describing, you know, pulling the hair out of every bit of one side of his body um, because he's going nuts in this tiny space. You're very profoundly impacted. Emblematic sort of name is seared into you. Um, but what people sometimes don't really see is the amazing work we've done with uh, all kinds of innovation and um, with brands and activations. And you're such a great storyteller. But what I find so impressive about you is that you're also on the tech side in that you've done a lot of innovation with headsets. And you actually had a role in getting Oculus Rift off the ground. Can you tell us how that came about? So I was determined to make that Peace Hunger in LA. And I was working uh, as a research fellow at USC. I was a senior research fellow at the journalism school. And there was a lab there run by a guy named Mark Bolas. Also in the lab was a guy basically acting as an intern, and his name was Palmer Lucky. And Palmer was tinkering with headsets, and then Hunger got into Sundance. Well, the only really working headset was $50,000 a pair. And, you know, Mark was like, you can't take that to Sundance. And so the push was on to have something we could take with us, and that would um, withstand many, many, many hours of demos. Um, and we showed up with this crazy big duct tape 
thing with these like lights on the top like look, look like reindeer antlers and <laughs> um and then Palmer was crashing my hotel room and driving the truck back and and helping run the demos and then nine months later he started Oculus Rift. Palmer Lucky went on to sell Oculus Rift to Facebook for uh, they say three billion dollars <laughs> uh, within two and a half years. I don't think he was old enough to drink yet. That's a good payday. I'll tell you what. And now you're doing something that's technologically innovative with reach. Can you tell us what reach is? So all the way through, I had to become a better C-sharp coder. I was programming my own stuff. I was begging, borrowing you know, from lots of different people. And it's really hard to make these stories, right? You know, And whenever I make a piece, I usually have another higher standard, another higher goal I want to achieve. So I always have to innovate the technology to reach that goal. So um, finally decided we should make it easier for people. I was so sick of having to show flat 2D videos as representative of volumetric walk-around content. So with a grant from the Knight Foundation and some unbelievable engineers on my team, we built a web VR platform. It's really web VR and AR, headset optional, tool set and distribution platform. You can see it at reach.love. And it lets anybody make content with just drag and drop and and button pushes, they don't have to do all the hard work that I had to do in order to make my work. And you produced something that I just saw at South by Southwest called Border Stories. That was a really cool approach to using Reach. Can you tell us about how you came up with that idea and how you put it together? So, you know, the border is uh, journalistically one of the more important stories that are pressing right now in the United States, right? And the National Butterfly Center, 70% of its land is threatened to be cut off by a border wall. So I, in partnership with Spectrum News, who were really keen to sort of test the waters here, I sent a reporter down there and we captured some folks and we assembled this thing very quickly and very inexpensively to let people use their keyboard to be there. They can walk on their keyboard. If they have a headset, they can actually walk around the Butterfly Center uh, area or they can look at it on their phone. So at South By, we were able to take this story and turn it into an immersive piece uh, using Reach, but um, very, very inexpensively. And also what's so cool about Reach is that it's because it's a web link, you can embed it like a YouTube video. So it's embeddable in the same way, you know, anybody would want it in their own web pages. So, you know, it doesn't have to be siloed off onto the channels that are now, you know, Steam or Google Play or other channels that are, you know, you have to pass a firewall to get access to the content. Out of curiosity, marketers are using VR, AR in different ways, and more and more museums are beginning to embrace these technologies. What are the most interesting things you're seeing in either one of those spaces? So um, I think that we know that when people put on a headset, that's undivided attention. And I think that really helps for storytelling purposes. So I think yeah. for marketers, it's a no-brainer to be thinking about this. And now that the headsets are getting lighter and easier. And um, like with Reach, we can use what they call a standalone headset because it just streams onto the headset. So there's no wires, no computers, no cables. Oh, nice. And it's just because we're just showing the story through a web link. You're just literally loading a web link and it loads straight into the goggles. And the setup is so challenging. If it's too complex to set up, the viewership goes right down. And so, um, and, and I guess the other thing about Reach is that you don't need a headset. You can just use a keyboard. But um, when you're in the headset, the experience is better. And that's when you get this really undivided attention. So... I think that that's a no-brainer for marketers. And also, gaming audience is, in terms of you know sheer dollars, 
it's larger now than television or film. So that audience wants to have their immersive experience across news, entertainment, advertising. So um, making immersive pieces is absolutely the direction that marketers are going to have to go into. And, you know, one thing, A, we're really great at working with brands, but we're also trying to make tools so that they can play themselves and start to understand the medium um, without having to have the intense learning curve I had to have. And I think museums understand, like, you know, your phone right now has two cameras. Why? Because it's letting you capture your world in depth. So every object is very easy now. Um, there's all kinds of tools out there, like the HP Sprout. Uh, you literally can just rotate the object in front of your computer and it'll capture it with volume. And um, you can use your mobile phone to capture things in volume. Um, so with every object able to be virtually rotated, moved, touched, it means that the history of how objects are used, they're not going to be stuck in a glass case or some viewing system. Yeah, you can have the real object there, but then maybe you have an associated goggles or whatever that people can then put on and then actually play with the object so that when they're done with it and they understand the story of that object, then the connection of that artifact that's in front of them in the museum will be so much more significant. Even if it's like, you know, the Rosetta Stone, which is actually just a tax collecting document, right? The <laughs> <laughs> British Museum is absorbing, uh, uh, it's really it's starting to take some very interesting uh, steps in this arena. I had the first VR piece at the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Yeah, I've been kind of shown, you know, I've been at Art Basel, I've been at the Hammer Museum, I've had great shows in museums, so um, clearly this is a, a growing space for them. So... You've had such a great, rich history in terms of VR. You were early pioneer. You're very involved today. Where do you see VR, AR, mixed reality going in the next couple of years? So um, I think that sometimes people go, oh, I, I'm going to do AR because the distribution on the phone is much easier right now. Or, you know, I just want to do VR. But it, it, you really, if somebody says that to you, you know that they're new to the business because you're generally using the same tools to make AR as you are VR. And it's really like, oh, am I exporting a PDF or am I exporting a doc? I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but essentially um, they come from the same code generation. So I really believe that much in the way that there's a lot of work being done on AR goggles that are both going to be VR and AR goggles, you know, your, your glasses right now, they can just darken into sunglasses, right? Very efficiently. I think that our glasses are going to merge to AR glasses, VR glasses, and our phone. There's all kinds of work being done in edge computing, which is super exciting. And the way that edge computing works is much in the same way you need data to be sent to your cell phone now when you move around. I mean, you don't expect to carry that in your phone. Uh, edge computing is going to send data straight to your glasses so that the glasses themselves can be lightweight and they just become essentially receptors for the data. And uh, that means that you won't be looking down all the time. We'll be able to look each other in the face again, which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> that would be so refreshing. I'd rather walk behind somebody who's able to look straight ahead versus looking down at their phone. As a New Yorker, I find myself constantly running into the backs of people. I believe that. You know, that hopefully it'll help change our behavior. Um, you know, I think... I'm still maybe naive, despite how old I am, and that I, I usually believe that these technologies can be used for good. We see how we have to be cautious 
and understand that um, they can be twisted needs for for dark things. But we saw that with film, certainly with propaganda. Um, there's the classic films that were shot in the Nazi concentration camps, which were total lies. But we always have to be aware that whatever we create technologically has the, the possibility for good and evil, right? And um, there's no doubt, but I tend to believe that more people who've been through VR have experienced content that has moved them and made them think about doing better in the world and helping others than I would say uh, have been manipulated. Now, we know that that time can come, but if we are willing to think about it and educate people, we stand a chance at least to get critical thinking to the forefront as people begin to uh, find that these technologies get adopted into their everyday lives. Yeah. But it's better if we can advocate its use for good today versus waiting for others to use VR for less positive purposes. Yeah. You know, and, and how does that work, right? You know, I know that the guys that I work with all the time care as much about somebody who's smart, interesting as they care about their gender or whatever. I mean, that's just not the issue. But it does require all of us to look and say, hey, I should invite some women if there's no women there, well, you know, to these tech events or show them the equipment or teach them how to use the equipment. It really does require everybody sort of to step up. And, you know, the numbers are just atrocious for women in technology. Um, it was less last year than the two years before. And, and so it was 2.2% of venture funding went to women founders. So that's tough, right? That's nearly 98% of the money went to guys and only 2% to the women. Makes it really hard for women to then be presented for other young women to be inspired by, right? There's just not those, leader, there's just not those leaders, right? And, you know, there was a, an AI algorithm that Amazon had to drop in which they realized for getting jobs at Amazon, they couldn't understand why it was so biased towards men. And it was because the AI was looking for the words uh, executed and captured. And the women weren't putting that on their resume. Oh, and yeah, for whatever reason, that wasn't the language that they were using. And, and those are the kind of, you know, ingrained bias that prevents women from accelerating in these type of careers. You know, I mean, the good news is I've got an amazingly diverse team and you know, sometimes they're like, uh-oh, Nani's got another idea. But <laughs> but um, in general, I can get them pretty excited about, you know, the hard work it takes to make these kind of breakthroughs, right? Really hard work. And my team works so hard. I can't stand it when I get up in the morning and I see an email from one of them in a, with, in a discussion, you know, at 6.32 in the morning because I know that they've been up all night, right, coding. Right. I've been raising two kids through this whole thing. And so I try to create some sort of balance and try to inculcate that balance. Right. But in general, that then means that there's some loyalty that I can come in and go, I've got this crazy idea. Can we try this? Well, that's good. And they're willing to be open to doing that. I mean, honestly, Reach has been three years of my trying to get that vision somewhere. And it's hard because we, we, you know, people are like, what do you see? What are you talking about? I mean, I had that problem with hunger. I had to make hunger in LA in order for people to say journalism and VR. When I, when I did that first piece, I had fingers in my face. You can't do that. That'll never work, right? Wow. And so reach That's is- so powerful. Oh though, my God, it was painful. Right there, yeah. It was painful in my face. Yeah. In my face. You know, that doesn't work. That's not journalism. I mean, I can't even tell you. Well, I was a research fellow at USC and I was kind of obsessed with hunger and the head of the journalism school left and my fellowship was not renewed because I didn't think what I was doing had value. Wow. 
Let's go back to what you just said about, uh-oh, Nani's got an idea. Is it different ideating for a two-degree film than a volumetric VR experience? Yeah, I get directors in and I literally have to say, no, 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 no. Throw away the idea of the close-up and literally repeat myself again. A couple of weeks later, no, 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 there's no close-up. So the way that I try to get people to think about making content in this way is, and this is what I do, I close my eyes and I imagine my entire body in the space. And once my entire body's in the space, then I start to feel the story around me. And that's how I think about storytelling in this way. And then how do you create the arc of a story when the viewer has the ability to go in so many different directions? Well, when we live in the real world, we live in the real world with our body. We just don't see the world just through our eyes um, or just our mind. It's our whole body to long for the ride. And I mean, even when you go to a scary movie, right? You jump in your seat, your body's there. So real world stories happen fully embodied and there's no reason we can't make content that's fully embodied. And you know, I mean, you hear a loud noise, you'll turn to the direction of the noise or there's ways in which we engage in the real world that are very applicable. It's just those sort of tricks are new for us still. And it's gonna be challenging to shift away from these very established paradigms. But I think it's a super exciting. I was giving a talk with and Hans Zimmer, the noted composer, was ahead of me and we were being introduced and he went, oh, film was the medium of the 20th century, but virtual reality, it's the medium of the 21st century, right? So- I agree with that. So um, we're just getting started with this. So Nani, this is a podcast called Project Next. I want to know more about what's coming down the pike for you. So what's next for Emblematic? What's next for Nani De La Pena? Well, Nani De La Pena is actually finishing up her PhD, thank God. Oh, wow. In what? Where? <laughs> At USC, in this in this field, essentially. Nice. So that's exciting. and um, You're going to have so much time on your hands now. I've got a daughter going off to college, finishing my PhD. It's going to be interesting next year. I think I'll have a little bit more breathing room. Okay. Um, but I seem to fill it as fast as I get it. But I think, uh, you know, technologically, we're continuing to make reach work. Right now we have a simple beta. But the fact that we're going to be able to allow timeline and animations, and, and this is all done in the browser, meaning you don't have to have any downloads or plugins or computer knowledge, I think that that's going to be really fun. The stories that people are going to tell, you can't even imagine, right, when you release these things into the wild. Sure. Well, we've been talking AR, VR, and mixed reality with Nani De La Pena. Nani, thanks for joining us. I've been really happy to be here. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this edition of Project Next. Until next time, I'm Brian Martin.